In the 1992 film Wayne's World, Wayne goes to a guitar shop to test drive a new guitar. And he picks up the guitar and he plays one chord and the shop assistant stops him and points to a sign on the wall that says, no stairway to heaven. And the stairway to heaven that they're talking about, obviously, is the song by Led Zeppelin. Sometimes called the best rock song ever written. You can argue that if you want. Beloved by all wannabe guitarists in guitar shops. It's about a lady. There's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold and she's buying a stairway to heaven. So this lady thinks that she can buy her way into heaven with money. And perhaps the reason this song has captivated millions since it was released nearly 50 years ago is that every human naturally seeks to find or buy or achieve a way of building a stairway to heaven. Back in chapter 11 in Genesis, the inhabitants of Babel wanted to build a tower. It may well have been a kind of terraced temple with stairs all the way up, reaching, they said, to the heavens so that they might make a name for themselves and secure themselves. And building our own stairways to heaven is the natural inclination of every human being. It might be five pillars, it might be the noble eightfold path, or the Christian version of those things, which is kind of tick the box, religion, get to church, do your bit, soothe your conscience. It might not be an obviously religious thing. We might have changed what we think heaven is. You know, if heaven is having the perfect annual holiday, then we will be striving year after year for blissful breaks at any price. If heaven is having people speak well of us, we'll be striving to the point of burnout to get that well done, good job. That's all that matters. If heaven is the house and the lifestyle and the bank balance, we'll be prepared to wait, work to breaking point to get it. Those are all different ways of trying to build a stairway to heaven. Now, the verses from Genesis that we're concentrating on this morning, which I'm going to read in a moment, they focus on a stairway to heaven, or to be more accurate, they focus on a stairway from heaven. Now, let me turn to page 30. We're going to read that. If you remember, if you've been here, Jacob has just managed to deceive his father Isaac into blessing him over his brother Esau. But now Jacob has had to flee because Esau wants to kill him. And Isaac blesses him again at the beginning of chapter 28. And, and off he goes. And Esau marries again. And then we come to verse 10. So chapter 28, verse 10 on page 30. Follow with me. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. 
I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he'd placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So if you look at the back of the pink notice sheet, you can follow through if you want, you can take notes if you wish. First, we see in the first couple of verses, verses 10 to 11, the sun goes down. The sun goes down. What does it feel like to be Jacob at this point? He's living with the consequences of his sin and deception. Yes, he's got his blessing, but now he is away from his father and, uh, and his family. And as the sun goes down, he has to sleep rough, out in the open, stone for a pillow. You might say he's hit rock bottom. He's the man who has been blessed by his father, but his circumstances don't seem to match that. I thought God was on my side. That's what all the prophecies and blessings have said. But right now, he might be thinking, it looks like the opposite is true. Have you felt what Jacob feels when circumstances don't make sense, when they don't line up with how you thought that things were meant to be? There's a sense in which this is Jacob's fault because he deceived his father and he cheated his brother. But there's a sense also in which now he's a victim of his brother's anger. And that is a realistic view of how life often goes, isn't it? We find ourselves in situations where we're simultaneously reaping the consequences of bad choices of sin, but we're also seeing the consequences of the bad choices and sin of others against us, all at the same time. The vast majority of relational problems that we face in our lives are like that, aren't they? When a relationship turns sour with a best friend or a parent or a sibling, a child, a spouse, we're very unlikely to be able to claim 100% innocence. And yet we may also be very conscious of pain caused by others towards us. Because life is messy. And so there is Jacob. And more than just his circumstances, there is his knowledge of God as well. Thus far in his life, God is someone who he knows a lot about. But the question is, does he actually know him? Abraham and Isaac had direct encounters with God early in their lives. But so far, Jacob's knowledge is secondhand. And the thing is, when you're at rock bottom sleeping on a stone, this is hardly the time that you expect that to change. 
I know for myself, when life is tough for whatever reason, the drawbridge easily goes up, there's a temptation to withdraw. It's easy to say things like, well, what's the point of praying? Now is hardly the time to expect a deeper knowledge of God. I just need to get through tomorrow. I just need to get through this week or whatever it is. Do you feel like that when you know you've messed up with God? Or you've messed up with your family or you've been rude to your friends? I'm a terrible person. I'm a terrible Christian, we think. Best thing is to go to bed and hide. So the sun is down. Jacob is asleep. Maybe tomorrow will be a better day. But do you know what? He doesn't even need to wait as long as tomorrow morning. As he sleeps, heaven opens. Verses 12 to 17. And look, there's a stairway, sometimes called a ladder. Our attention is drawn to three things with this stairway. First, it's extent. It rests on the earth and it reaches to heaven. Then who's on it? Well, angels are going up and angels are going down. And then who's at the top? God himself is at the top. And, and Jacob only heard about God before. Now he is meeting God himself. And he's hearing from him. And so God speaks and his words are words of reassurance. He is the God of the past the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. He is the God of the future. I will give you you and your descendants the land in which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust over all the earth, blessing all peoples through you and your offspring. So he's the God of the past, God of the future, and he's the God of the present. I am with you and watch over you. I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised. And Jacob awakes. And he thinks, and, and we may agree, well, what is going on? What is the Lord doing here with messy, deceitful Jacob languishing in the consequences of his sin? He's at rock bottom in the middle of nowhere. What is God doing here? And he's afraid. The other patriarchs tend to take God appearing to them in their strides, but Jacob recognises this is really strange. This is not what he deserves. This is the gate of heaven. The real shock for Jacob, and perhaps it's a shock for us, is to discover that at the very point when he thought he was as far from God as he could possibly be, God was right there. When it comes to climbing the stairway to heaven, our natural inclination and assumption is that life is about trying to climb up the stairway, but when we mess up, we slip back down to the bottom. Like one of those you know, treadmill obstacles you get on Total Wipeout or Ninja Warrior, or indeed just trying to go up an escalator that's going down. I once got asked to leave John Lewis for doing that. It was a very long time ago. But that is how we assume, isn't it? it works, isn't it, if we want to get into heaven. We want to get accepted by God. You've got to climb up, and when you mess up, you're back at the bottom again. But what is this thing? God is right there. This is not what Jacob deserves, but it reminds us that in the Bible, knowing God is never a matter of us working our way up to God, but it's about him coming down to us. 
When they built the Tower of Babel to try and get up to heaven in chapter 11, God knocked it down. Not because he didn't want to be in relationship with human beings, but because our stairways that we attempt to build never work. They always end up being ways of keeping God at arm's length, doing things all on our terms. But God says, no, you can't do it like that. And then in his grace, he comes down anyway. And in his grace, we see here, God is with us even at rock bottom and he's at work that's what these angels are about you see they are doing God's work in the background unseen unheard but this vision was there for Jacob and for us to understand it might feel like rock bottom it might feel like our sin is too great it might feel like our choices are too foolish but don't ever believe the lie that he's not there even in the darkness the middle of the night he's at work Now, I know many Christians read these accounts through Genesis and we think, well, you know, it's great for these patriarchs, these great heroes of the faith. They have these amazing encounters with God. And what about us? You know, we we don't get dreams like this. No, no, the point is we've got something far better than what Jacob had. And that's because of what Jesus said to Nathaniel, as we heard in the first reading from John's Gospel. He talks about seeing angels ascending and descending but not now on a stairway, on the Son of Man, on Jesus himself. See, the way this is fulfilled in Jesus is that in the face of our sin, with humanity at rock bottom, God came down here as a man, as Jesus, not just to point the way up to heaven like a prophet, but to be the way to heaven. To be the way to knowing God. And there came a time, three years later, when the sun went down in the middle of the day. And Jesus experienced total darkness. He experienced being cut off from his father. He experienced his father's righteous, settled wrath at sin. Not his own sin, but the sin of his people. So Martin Luther talked about the theologian of glory and the theologian of the cross. He didn't mean professional academic theologians. Every Christian is a theologian because every Christian has some kind of knowledge of God. That's what a theologian is. But some, he says, are theologians of glory and they think God is only found where there is strength and there's power and there's wealth. But he says, no, no, no. Actually, the true theologian must be a theologian of the cross and see that God shows up in the most unexpected places in a manger among sinners and tax collectors crucified between two criminals he wrote he who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering and again true theology and recognition of God are in the crucified Christ So what does that mean then? It means that when we sin and we know it, and when we're suffering, our instinct is to kind of hide and think, well, God's not interested in me. But he says, no, I am here right now. I came down for sinners. I joined sinners in the darkness and in the mess and in the brokenness. And therefore now I remain close to sinners who seek me. 
The gap between heaven and earth, we sometimes think, is millions of miles. You know, God is somewhere far off in the distance. No, he's right here. We just can't see him. That's what Jacob discovered. And that is what we know to be true because of Jesus coming into the world and then sending his Holy Spirit. And as he left, as we saw in the opening verse, he says, Behold, I am with you always. So we need never say again that God has abandoned us when it feels as if the sun has gone down and heaven is silent. God's been there too in Jesus. And he did it for us and he's there right now. Jacob didn't deserve this and neither do we, but God is a God of relentless grace. Well, what then is a fitting response to this? That's what we see in the final few verses. Jacob wakes and new life begins. Verses 18 to 22. Often I find when I'm explaining this concept of God's relentless grace to people, maybe in Christianity Explored or something like that, or maybe just in everyday conversation, a very common response is to say, does that mean that we can do what we like? And if God is this close to sinners, well, you know, that, doesn't that a license to sin? Sounds like a free pass. And Paul addresses this precise question in Romans chapter 6 in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, he says, by no means you died to sin and now you are alive to righteousness. And what he means is this, it's like being rescued out of debt by a rich, generous benefactor who not only rescues you from debt, but you fall in love with each other and you marry. And it's an extraordinary act of grace and love. All your debts are written off. But then someone asks, must a husband and wife live together? You know, must, is it really necessary for newlyweds to spend time together? And the answer, of course, is, well, why ever would you not want to do that? What have you been saved for, if you like? It would only be because you see this as a marriage of convenience. You know, yes, it's technically possible and there are marriages which sadly end up like this, but that's hardly the point of marriage. And it's the same with us and God, do you see? He saved us by his grace for relationship with him. Yes, our sins are forgiven, our debt is written off, but even more than that, we get him. We get to be in relationship with the God who made us, who came into the world in the person of his son, to die for us. Here is Jacob with a fresh start and when you know you've been saved and forgiven and brought into a relationship with God, how can you do anything other than enjoy that relationship that you've been saved for? And that is what Jacob begins to do here as his new life starts. He, he, he makes two things. He makes first a memorial. The stone that had been all he had for a pillow becomes a monument becomes a pillar, a symbol of God's presence, like a mini stairway, a mini tower, with oil poured on the top to remind him and us of the direction of the blessing. You see, you pour oil on the top and it goes down. That's the way the blessing has come. This wasn't about Jacob climbing up to God. Do you see? It was about God coming down to Jacob. And verse 19, he called it Bethel, house of God. So now in the future when he's confronted by his own sin, as he certainly will be, and we'll see that in the following chapters, he's by no means a perfect man at this point. He finds himself isolated and walking in dark valleys, as he certainly will do. He can remember 
God was with me at Bethel and he's promised he is with me right now. And Christians can do this as well with times when we have particularly known God with us. We can draw on those times and encourage each other, reminding one another of times when we've particularly known God close to us. And Christians can do this particularly in relation to Jesus' death on the cross. We have our own memorial, don't we, in the Lord's Supper, in Holy Communion. When we remember Jesus' death for our sins, as Paul says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? But a memorial isn't just a past thing, a museum piece, a, a memory. It's about the present as well. It's about trusting in Christ today, feeding on him today, and receiving afresh the benefits of his death for us. Both when, as we receive the Lord's Supper when we do that, but also in our daily lives. It's a present reality, not just a past thing. The thing is, though, in the end, Bethel, this place, became a bit of a snare to Israel. So hundreds of years later, still before Jesus, but hundreds of years after this, the prophet Amos wrote in rebuke to the, to the nation of Israel, he said, uh, saying of God, God says, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. Because the thing that had happened was the place where God had once met with Jacob became an alternative to actually meeting now with the living God. Is there a danger of clinging on to ways that God has been with us in the past at the expense of knowing him in the present? Every church has to ask itself that question. You know, it's very easy to be defined by events in the past, positively and negatively. It's encouraging when we remember how God has been with us. Times of spiritual growth, times of God at work in people's lives. But let that be an encouragement to seek to know him even more today. And we need to ask that as individuals as well. Maybe we've got a dramatic account of coming to faith in the past. Or a way that God was with us through a particularly hard time, a time when we've known him particularly close to us. And it's, it is healthy to remember those times with thankfulness, just as Jacob does here. But it is also healthy not to rest on those times alone, but to continue to seek him in the present. Because the whole point of the vision that Jacob had was for him to see that the gap between earth and heaven is paper thin. And we know in Christ that God is with us, not just on those amazing times in the past, but always, even today, and always will be. So he makes the memorial, and then he makes a vow, verse 20. Some people read this slightly negatively, because he says, if God will be with me, it sounds a little bit like he's doubting. It's not really clear how strong that, that word, if, is meant to be taken. At face value, what he says is true. If God does as he's promised, he will be blessed indeed. And his response will be to tithe what God has given him to give back a tenth. This is something that would later be binding on Israel when Moses gave the law at Mount Sinai, but it wasn't a law for Jacob in that sense. And, and, and it's not a law for Christians in, in that kind of way. But what Jacob is doing is he's saying, this is my way of saying, thank you, Lord, for your relentless grace. I don't deserve any of this. And so from what you've given me, I want to give back to you. See, only the heart that's been 
gripped by God's grace, would ever give in this way, freely, joyfully, sacrificially, generously. You can tell that St John's has been gripped by God's grace because people at St John's give generously to the work of the church and we're very grateful to God for that. And we don't bang on about giving and fundraising, we don't pass around a plate and so on because we want to be really clear that God's grace has to come before we give. What we'd want, we don't want people's money, we want people to know Jesus first and foremost. But if God's grace has gripped you and you want to respond like Jacob, you can grab one of the leaflets off the welcome table. Have a look at the website. For, for, for Jacob, a new life begins as he wakes. It's not a perfect life. He's still the same old Jacob at many points in the chapters that follow. But change starts now. And God is working in him and through him just as he promised he would. And it's the same for us. If you've not yet come to Jesus, he invites you to come to him as the way back to God. To trust him in the darkness. To know that he's not waiting for you to kind of get your act together, sort everything out, and then you can come to him. No, he comes to us. So you can start today. The way to heaven is open through him. Come to him, put your trust in him. Know that he died for your sin and your brokenness. Know that the way back to God is there for you in him. And if we are trusting in Jesus, imperfectly, often in great weakness, conscious of sin and failure, know that this God of relentless grace is right here. He's at work in the driest and darkest circumstances. He's with us. And in Christ we get to dwell in the house of God forever. So let's consider our response to that in a moment of quiet and then I'll lead us in prayer. Father God, thank you that you are with us. You don't wait for us to make our way up to you, but you have come down to us in Jesus. And thank you for the confidence we have that you are with us always, whatever our circumstances. We pray that this week that that truth would be real to us, that you would be real to us as we trust in Jesus, as we spend time with you in your word, as we spend time in prayer, as we encourage one another and seek to live these things out in our daily lives. We pray that as we do that, we would be able to point to your goodness and love and kindness. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.